welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Today, we'll be reading from and learning from one of the great resurrection accounts written by an eyewitness, the Apostle John, in his gospel. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. And so, let us hear the word of God. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is God's eternal, life-changing, and trusted word. May it have its full impact on every heart before it, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, every year, uh, thousands of people climb a mountain in the Italian Alps. And uh, they go there to uh, visit the Stations of the Cross, which are icons that, that portray the the last hours of Christ on, on earth as he shouldered the crossbeam after his scourging and, and walked through the streets of Jerusalem, the way of sorrows, and was nailed to the cross, crucified, died. And it, it's a symbol of those hours of his earthly passion, his suffering. And uh, at the end of these icons, right in the middle, the largest one is an outdoor crucifix with Christ dead on the cross. And people flock to this place over and over again every year. And, and uh, one particular individual went there and he noticed a little trail that led beyond that cross. And he fought through the rough thicket that had overgrown it. And to his surprise, he came upon another shrine, another image. 
It was a shrine that symbolized the empty tomb. It was neglected. The brush had grown up around it and the path to it had grown over because no one had walked it. Almost everyone had gone as far as the cross, you see, but there they stopped. They didn't walk farther to see the ultimate truth behind the day of the cross, and that was the day of the resurrection. And I think that's an image of where so many people are today with the life and death of Christ. Our society has uh, not much of a problem believing Jesus lived and died. In fact, many people in our society are fascinated with what is called the passion of the Christ. His suffering the innocence that they believed he possessed, and the terrible hours of suffering leading up to his death on the cross. They can go all the way to the image of his death on the cross, and there's human pity and and a sense of injustice, and that's as far as they go. Many have gotten to the cross and become enthralled in a way with the suffering and the heartbreak of it, but far too few have moved beyond the cross to find the real message of Easter and the real reason he went to the cross, not simply to die for sin, but to rise to show his victory over sin and death and to rise and ascend into heaven so that now he's able to rule and reign in the heart of anyone who trusts him as Savior and Lord. That's the supernatural dimension of Easter that our natural eyes don't see. And that's what I want to speak into today. There was a promise behind the passion, you see. The great story, the story that saves, is not just believing Jesus died, but believing that he rose again, he's alive today. To forgive my sin, to indwell my heart, to carry me into eternity. Oh, the, the message, the full message of the gospel is not simply a crosswork, it's a resurrection. Now, this is where people struggle in our society. It's where I struggled as a younger skeptic. I could understand some of the dimensions of the earthly life of Christ. Yet when we get to the supernatural step, when we get to the to the place where all the laws of nature We're parted at the resurrection. That's where so many stop. And and they say, I just can't believe that. They reject it. But when they come to know more detail, when they come to know the evidences, when they think through in their minds all the implications of what, uh, what the resurrection means and how it's the only valid explanation for the empty tomb on that third day morning, they, in, in intellectual honesty, many come to accept the resurrection, as I did, moving from disbelief to acceptance of this truth as the only explanation for that empty tomb. And so I want to take you today into that kind of thought process. And I want to take you to the words, the eyewitness testimony of the very first person ever to believe in the resurrection. The very first person to look at the evidence, to step into the empty tomb and to believe. As the scripture says here, John the apostle looked and he saw, verse verse 8, and he believed. I want to take you into that experience that he had today. I want to walk you through that morning and I want to show you what he saw and bring it into your understanding so that you may see and believe. 
If you're a believer, you're going to be blessed and deepened in your understanding of your faith. If you're an inquirer, you're going to be strengthened to understand that this faith is real and you can believe in the risen Christ. If you're a skeptic, I'm so glad you're here because you're going to be challenged with the the details and the facts and the argument that must be made for the empty tomb and the risen Jesus. So I'm going to walk you through this passage and really discuss as we go the two dimensions that were going on in the Apostle John's life, where he was in unbelief and what turned him to true belief. Now, as we walk through this passage, you need to understand this is a, an account written by the Apostle John, who was one of the, the chosen apostles or disciples of Christ in his earthly ministry. He was perhaps the closest to Christ in human relationship. They were bonded as friends. When Jesus was betrayed and crucified, John was perhaps the only disciple who did not completely abandon him in fear and, and yet John also was there at the cross. We know that because the Gospels tell us that. And in his account of it, in the Gospel of John, he talks about being there, being at the foot of the cross, watching the suffering of Christ, being there with Mary, Christ's mother. And then as an eyewitness in chapter 19, he describes being there when the Roman soldiers pierced the side of Christ with a spear to assure that he was indeed dead. John saw the water and the blood coming out of the pierced pericardium of Jesus Christ. He said, I was a witness to it. I who write these words saw those things. He was probably, although we know we can't know for sure, a witness to the body being taken off the cross by Joseph and Nicodemus, and perhaps even wrapped in the burial, uh, the burial shroud that we're going to talk about and taken to the tomb. But John was there. Now, John was humble about his relationship with Jesus. He never wanted to make more of himself than should have been made. He wanted Christ to be the focus. So in his gospel, he never mentions himself by name. He calls himself the, the disciple who whom Jesus loves. So in this passage, when it talks about Simon Peter, verse 2, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, John is talking about himself. He's saying, this is what I saw on resurrection morning. So it's an eyewitness account. Now let me set the stage for you in terms of what had happened. Jesus had indeed been crucified. John had been there. He'd watched every moment. He had been pronounced dead by the Roman executioners, the spear pressed into the pericardium. Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy believer in Christ, a Jewish man in Jerusalem, and Nicodemus, a Jewish leader, came to Pilate after the, the, the pronouncement of Christ as dead, and they asked for permission to take Christ's body from the cross and to give it an honored burial. And Pilate gave them permission Now, Joseph and Nicodemus then took the body from the cross and they wrapped it and prepared it according to the burial customs of the Jews. Now, this is important. I'm going to go into a little historical detail for you in a moment or two. Don't let your eyes glaze over. Let your mind open up, please. This church, sometimes it happens. People's eyes glaze over. Welcome back. Hello. This is going to be some scientific detail, but it's part and partial of part part and parcel of the story. So Joseph and Nicodemus, the Bible says, and John said he witnessed it in John 19. 
took the body, this is John 19, 39, and they came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, this is John 19, 40, and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So they took the body, but Jews didn't bury in caskets. They didn't bury simply in a shroud. They They packed the body. They surrounded it. Dr. Merrill Tenney, in his research on this, describes it. In preparing a body for burial, he writes, according to Jewish custom, it was usually washed and straightened and then bandaged tightly from the armpits to the ankles in strips of linen about a foot wide. Aromatic spices, often of a gummy consistency, were placed between the wrappings or folds as they were wound. They served partially as a preservative and partially as a cement to glue the cloth wrappings into a solid cover. And that's what John describes here, perhaps as an eyewitness in John 19.40, where it says they bound it in linen cloths with the spices. So what they did with Christ's body was they wrapped it in these, these, these linen cloths filled with gummy spices, and it surrounded the body. The arms were laid out, the arms were wrapped, then the torso was wrapped over and over again, down to the legs. The legs were wrapped. And as that wrapping was made it would harden. It was meant to preserve the body, to put off the smell of decay, but it became a hardened linen case around the arms, the torso, and the legs of the body. Then a special, uh, separate kind of rectangular cloth, a white cloth was taken, and they, they, they wrapped it around the head and, and knotted it at the bottom to hold the jaw in place. I'm sorry if I'm getting graphic, but by the way, Jesus truly died. He died. He was taken off a cross in a state of death. He was wrapped as a body. His, his body was wrapped in death. And his jaw was closed in death. And so that's how he was prepared. And these, these burial wrappings would solidify and harden up to 75 pounds in weight surrounding the body of Christ. Then John said in John 19:41, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. It was the tomb purchased by Joseph of Arimathea. It wasn't in the public cemetery. It was in a special honored place, a privately purchased place. It wasn't surrounded by other tombs. That's going to become important later in this story. And so they placed the body there. So all of that is how this this all moved. And you have to understand it and remember it to understand why this story provoked John to believe. Now, after the the body was placed in that tomb, not in a casket, but wrapped in this way, they, they placed it gently into a marble kind of a slab inside the tomb. The tomb, by the way, was not in the ground. It was it, it was carved out of a wall of solid rock. There was an opening in it about this high that you could move in and and, and can bring a body into. After the body of Jesus was placed, Joseph and Nicodemus with a team of other men rolled a one and a half to two ton shaped round stone onto the opening of that tomb from a little incline on the side. It was rolled there to seal the tomb. 
to seal it from being invaded by tomb robbers who often would rob the graves of wealthy people like Joseph of Arimathea to take the body. They would take the body out of the tomb, take it to a different place, desecrate it, unwrap it, and take the the jewels and other things from the body as as their, their plunder. And so these great rocks were rolled by the rich over the mouth of these tombs. They were one and a half to two tons. No one could move them. It would take a small army to move it off. The incline allowed you to drop it, but after that, it would take a small army of strong men to move that stone. It was designed never to be opened. Now, after this, the Jews had gone to Pilate while Joseph was preparing the body of Christ and said, listen, this man predicted he would rise from the dead. We're afraid somebody might try and stage a resurrection, so we want you, Pilate, to set... Roman guards, not our Jewish guards who aren't really greatly trained. No, set your Roman guards, the, the, the strongest and finest of, of, of the greatest army in the world, set a guard over the tomb to make sure no funny business occurs. And Pilate agrees, and he sets a team of soldiers out there. They put a Roman seal, a four-pointed seal, on the face of that rock so that if anyone even came up and tampered with it to try and move it, if you broke the seal, you were guilty and you were executed. A team of soldiers stood 24-7 around that rock. All during the three days that Jesus was in there. So that's all the backstory to what happens. Now we come to the third day, John 20, verse 1. He describes it as the first day of the week. It was our Sunday. Three days had passed and Jesus had predicted, on the third day I will what? I'll rise. And that's exactly what happened had happened. On the third day, between verse 42 of chapter 19 and verse 1 of chapter 20, three days had passed, and Jesus Christ had indeed risen. He had had risen, and he'd left that tomb, and an angel, along with a mighty earthquake, had occurred. The earthquake had occurred. The Roman guards fell away in fear. An angel took that rock and threw it away from the front of the tomb, according to the Gospels? What would that be like? You wake up as a Roman guard in the morning, the earthquakes, and you see this two-ton rock thrown over your head by an angel. That'll be a story to tell. And then trembling, you look in, and there is no Jesus. So the guards run, according to the Gospel of Matthew. They flee back into Jerusalem and tell the Jewish authorities, it has happened, Jesus has risen. We saw it. There was an earthquake. An angel rolled away the rock. We looked in. There was no Jesus Christ. What are we going to do? So they had seen this resurrection, and Jesus had risen, and the Roman soldiers had run after the earthquake. All of that had happened between verse 49 of chapter 19 and verse 1 of chapter 20. Now Mary and the disciples didn't know any of this. The Bible says that they had become shattered in their belief in Jesus. They believed he would not die, would not be killed in this way, and they saw him dead and crucified, and their faith collapsed. And so each one went to their own home in fear of the Jewish authorities chasing the believers in Jesus and an absolute emotional devastation because their faith had been broken, their master had died and been executed. They did not believe he was going to rise from the dead. Not a one. So the disciples, Peter and John and the others, were in hiding in their homes. Mary Magdalene, someone deeply devoted to Christ, decides to come 
on the morning of the third day to anoint a dead body. Somehow, if she could get into that tomb. She perhaps didn't understand that a rock had been rolled, but she came to anoint a dead body. The point I'm making here is this. John didn't believe in a resurrection. Peter didn't believe in a resurrection. Mary Magdalene didn't believe in a resurrection. She came to the tomb that morning, John 20, verse 1, to to gaze upon a dead body and somehow perhaps anoint it, but it's simply, if not, to stand in vigil outside the tomb of a dead man. Do you understand me? So all of that is the story to this. Now, in the verse, the verse of the chapter, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The guards are gone. The stone has been rolled away. Mary doesn't know what to make of this, but she completes a sentence in her own mind. This can only mean one thing. A team of grave robbers had come, somehow moved that stone away, and had stolen the body of Jesus. She didn't even uh, look into the tomb. She just automatically thought, somebody's come and taken the dead body of my dead Lord. And so the Bible says, so she what? Verse 2, she ran. She ran. And she went back. To the two disciples she knew the best, Simon Peter, verse, verse 2, and the other disciple, John, the one whom Jesus loved. And what did she say to them? Jesus is risen from the dead. He's Lord. No. She didn't believe that was going to happen. No, she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. Grave robbers got in and stole the dead body of Jesus. And that has now added to my grief. The point I'm making is she didn't believe in a resurrection, didn't think it was going to happen. That was what she was telling them. And then Peter and John, they hear this and they go to see for themselves, verse 3. And they begin to go toward the tomb. So what do we know about Mary? She had come to anoint a dead man or to at least stand in vigil outside his, his tomb. And she did not believe Jesus had risen. She believed the body had been stolen by grave robbers. Now John believed the same thing. John came running to see if somebody had indeed stolen the body. He came running to see an empty tomb, and he came running to see a rock rolled back. But he too did not believe that Jesus had risen. Dr. Gordon Burchard is a researcher on this, and he wrote in his account of this text, he said, Mary's statement and John's acceptance of it indicates that the early Christians had no sense that the tomb would have been empty. They were not believing in or expecting a resurrection. The only possibility that crossed Mary's mind that early morning was that the body must have been stolen in violation of Jewish burial integrity and of Roman practice. And we know that John believed the same thing. I'm trying to set the stage for you to tell you that neither one of the people, none of the people, Mary, John, or Peter, that came to that tomb that morning believed a resurrection had occurred yet. So the first understanding to have about John, and it'll be on the screen here, is that believing in the resurrection of Jesus was a decision John never expected to ever make. That's the first understanding from this context you need to have. Believing in the resurrection of Jesus was a decision that John never expected to make. 
He never believed Jesus would rise from the dead. He didn't understand the predictions of Jesus that he would rise from the dead. When Mary told him the body was stolen, John believed the body was stolen. He came to see the desecration and to mourn over it. He wasn't a skeptic. He was simply somebody that didn't believe and he didn't expect and that's where so many people are today. They go as far as the passion of the Christ and then their, their, their understanding diminishes and they don't believe in the supernatural possibility of a resurrection. Maybe that's where you are. The supernatural dimension of Christianity is where you, where you check out, where you stop. That's where I checked out and stopped until the evidence began to gather and I began to turn and believe. Lee Strobel was an atheist turned Christian, still is today. He writes uh, uh, a, a lot of different books on apologetics, the case for Christ, the case for faith. He was a, a legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. He was trained in journalism and, and uh, also in law at Yale Law School. He was a professional journalist, journalist for 14 years, and he was a skeptic regarding the resurrection for all that time. And he set out on his own to examine the evidence, and he came back from examining the evidence. He went to the tomb a skeptic, but he came back from the tomb like John, a believer. Because he saw the evidence. And that's what I hope you'll do in the next few minutes, because now I turn from what John thought he believed, resurrections aren't possible, to the fact that now we, we see that John turns and he comes to believe. So I hope you're tracking with the story. Let's go to verse 3 now. So Peter went out with the other disciple. We know that to be John. And they were going toward the tomb after Mary came and told them somebody had stolen the body. They believed somebody had stolen the body and they went to take a look. Both of them were running together. Don't you love the detail of the Bible? You know John was there. He even says he were running and he says he beat Peter. What can I say? I mean, it's, it's a human narrative, right? So both of them were running together, but the other disciple, that's John himself, but I outran Peter, and I reached the tomb first, and stooping in to look in, John saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, and this is classic Simon Peter. What, if, what did Simon Peter always do? Act on impulse. <laughs> he always entered every room mouth first, and, and uh, whatever, and he enters into the tomb. He blows past John. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and look at this. And he saw and he believed. Everything changed in that moment. Somehow John went from a man who thought the tomb had been opened and the body had been stolen and Jesus' life was over and, and his faith in Christ was gone. Suddenly he stood there in that tomb and he believed. Believed in what? He believed in the supernatural bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ as the almighty son of God. Boom, it all shifted in that moment. Now, why did that happen? And here's where the detail I went into earlier will help you. What did they see standing there in that tomb on that morning? Well, it says that they saw the linen cloths lying there, verse 6. What's that all about? Remember, I told you how the body had been wrapped around and around the torso and the arms and the legs in a solid wrapped casing of linen 
and these, these spices that had all become gummy and solid. 75 pounds worth. Now the scripture says, and the text indicates, that the body wrappings were there undisturbed. They weren't unraveled. They weren't shattered and broken. They were lying there, get this, as if a body was still inside of them. But it wasn't. That's what John's eyes saw. The wrappings were lying there still solid in the shape of a body, a 75-pound casing, but with no body. What's the only explanation for that? (laughs) A dematerialization, a movement through through that burial casing, a resurrection moment is the only explanation for that. You see, if grave robbers had broken in, what would they have done? They're committing a crime, and so they would take the body, casing and all, one guy on one end, one guy on the other, and they would trundle that body out, get a couple other guys to help them, and they would hightail it out of Dodge with the body fully wrapped, get to a secret place, and then they would break open the shroud on that body and the casing and where they were safe to do it, and then they would rob the jewels or whatever was with the body. That's not what happened. If the tomb was robbed, the body shouldn't have been there, nor should the wrappings, but the the encasement was there, undisturbed by human hands. The wrappings were lying there as if Jesus came right through them. That's the explanation that we understand. And then how about this, this, this uh, linen head covering? That wasn't lying there at the top of the, the casing of the body like you might expect if, if Christ's body went right through that. No, it had been taken and it had been moved to another ledge in the tomb and instead of just dropped there in a, in a heap, somehow someone had taken it and folded it in squares very neatly once, then twice, had walked to the other side of the tomb and laid it down very neatly in a separate place. How does that happen? Well, it happens if the Lord Jesus Christ rises in mighty glory in a real physical body, moves through those casings, and before he decides to leave that tomb, let me make this kind of quaint, the master of the universe tidied up a little bit. And he reached over and took that linen cloth that been placed around his head to hold his jaw in place once, twice. Laid it on a tomb ledge at the side and then, boom, he was gone. You see, that's what the Bible means when it says that John went in and he saw the linen cloths lying there untouched as if a body was still in them and the head covering folded up in a place by itself and he saw and believed because there was no other explanation for this. Jesus Christ autographed his own resurrection for those two guys. Now, this has been understood as people look at this text and look at this encounter for centuries. 
As Lewis Johnson, a Bible teacher of recent times, says, said this, so evidently as John looked at the, 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 the encasement of the burial wrappings that were empty, he sensed that the body had been swiftly dematerialized, had passed through those garments, and the Lord was gone in resurrection. This may have been why at other points in his gospel, when, Jesus, when John wrote about encountering Jesus in the 40 days after the resurrection, John on two occasions talked about how Jesus Christ in his resurrection body walked right through a wall. Remember those stories? Because he'd already seen it happen in the tomb. Jesus Christ in his resurrection body was not subject to material laws anymore and physical laws anymore. Right out of that body shroud, not an inch disturbed. Same way he walked through the wall in the upper room to look to the disciples and say, do not be afraid. I am risen. I'm with you. Reach out and touch me and see that I'm real. I'm whole. Dr. R.C.H. Lenski in his Bible commentary, a great Bible commentator, said this, quote, no human being wrapped round and round with burial bands like this could possibly slip out of them without greatly disturbing them. They would have had to be unwound or cut through or cut off and stripped off by the grave robbers. They would thus, if removed, lie strewn around in disorder, or if in reality, any grave robber would have taken the body whole and never left any evidence behind. But here, the, the burial wrappings were, the casing remained. It was unwrapped, it was solid both their presence and the, the undisturbed condition spoke volumes to John. Here indeed was a sign to behold, and a second sign lay beside the first, the burial, the, 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 the cloth that had been around the head of Christ, called in Greek the sudarion, which had been on the head of Jesus, he writes, bound around it to hold it in place. It lay in a place apart from the wrappings, neatly folded up. It had not been snatched off and thrown aside. The perfect participle here says it was neatly folded and in a most orderly way. Who had done it? The previous wearer. Now risen. Now seeing all of this, you look at your Bible, this is why the Bible says John stepped into that tomb and saw all these things and he saw and believed. He believed. And I believe in a flash, his mind went back to what Jesus had promised, you see. It says in the next verse, it says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. It was a mystery to them until that moment. But the Spirit of God opened their eyes and John saw and believed and his mind raced back to all the times when Jesus had actually predicted that this is exactly what had happened. In John chapter 2 of his gospel, his mind must have gone back to the time when Jesus was standing outside the great temple a couple of years before this. And the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for, to prove that you're Messiah? And Jesus answered them in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now he's standing in front of the physical Jewish temple. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this place. Will you raise it up in three days? but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples, John said, including me, remembered what, what he, that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When did John put it all together? Standing in that empty tomb, looking at that burial place. He believed. 
in the vacated tomb. Maybe his mind went back to what Matthew would later record in Matthew chapter 20, one of the many times read in our hearing from Mark this morning in our, in our text in the service. Jesus told them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified, but I will rise. Matthew 28, 18, or 20, 18. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus told them, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. They saw all that. They knew all that had happened, but look what Jesus said, and he will be raised on the third day. When did it all come together for John? On the third day, standing in that empty tomb. It all rushed into his mind. Or Matthew 26, verse 31, when Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. John knew that. They all abandoned Christ in unbelief. Their dream was over. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I'm not only going to rise from the dead, you're going to see me just as I am, and I'm going to go to Galilee, and hundreds and hundreds of others will see me too, as the Bible tells us exactly happened. Jesus said, I'm, just, I'm not rising as a ghost. I'm not rising as a quaint spiritual idea. I'm rising this way. You'll see me. All of it came back to John's mind. And the prophecy from the words of David in Psalm 16, that the one who rises this way is the Messiah. For David said, you will not abandon my soul to hell and or let your Holy One see corruption. You won't let the body of the Messiah rot away. It all became clear. So here's the second thing to know about John. Once he understood the evidence it was the only decision he could make to believe in the resurrection. Do you hear me? The first moments of this chapter, he was a skeptic. He was a brokenhearted people who had, person who had believed in, a, in an earthly leader but did not believe in the resurrection. And as a skeptic, believing in the resurrection was a decision he never thought he would make. But standing in that tomb, seeing the evidence, suddenly believing in the resurrection was the only decision he could make. And he did. And he went on to follow Jesus Christ for decades to be tortured in his service and, and to, to die having suffered much for the cause of this risen Jesus. Now, how would something like this story connect with you? Well, because uh, if you're not a believer today, you're not a believer, at least for one reason, and that is that you haven't been able to believe in the resurrection or you didn't understand the nature of the death of Jesus. I've just explained both. His death was a death died to take the wrath of God for your sin. His resurrection proved that that sacrifice was accepted, that he is God Almighty. He's risen today and he desires to be the Lord of your life. And so coming to Christ calls you to believe both of these. Now, you might, like I said in the beginning of the story, you might walk to the top of the hill and look at a cross and say, yeah, I believe Jesus died. But you've got to go past that to the tomb of the resurrection and believe also that he rose. You've got to believe both of those to be a Christian. Now, if you're a skeptic, you face the same dilemma John did. There's, there's an empty tomb there. And you have to decide... What evidence do you believe indicates that he rose or not? 
Did you know that the vast majority of scholars today, secular and sacred or Christian, who study history, the vast majority of all scholars, atheists, doesn't matter where they come from, do believe that Jesus of Nazareth was born, as he, was, was born, in, born in, in, in Bethlehem, lived a life as a Jewish man, taught in the Jewish nation, was betrayed, tortured, and crucified. And that he was laid in that tomb. Now listen to this. They believe all that history, but they also admit that on the third day, that tomb was empty. It's not just Christians that believe that. Scholars have to admit, on the third day, the body was gone. Historians admit that. And so they face a, a dilemma. How do we explain that? In the same way that when John was running to the tomb, surging through his mind is, what's happened? Now, historians have tried to explain away the resurrection ever since the guards came back to the, 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 the Pharisees there on that Easter morning and said, we don't know how to tell you this, but the rock rolled and he rose. <laughs> and ever since then, skeptics have had to come up with explanations as to why he couldn't have risen, why they, they have to explain the empty tomb. And there are basically uh, six different uh, accounts of this that scholars, quote, I use that word loosely, have come up with over the years Instead of admitting there was a physical resurrection. You've heard me teach this at other times. Won't go through it in the detail I've done in the past. But here's the six. One explanation scholars have is that Jesus wasn't really dead when he was buried. He simply passed out on the cross. And he uh, got laid in that tomb and somehow the coldness of the tomb woke him up. And encased in 75 pounds of burial shroud after being flogged and crucified, somehow he had the strength to move over to the side of the tomb, nudge a two-ton rock off the front, come on out, frighten the guards to death, somehow get loose out of the casings, go into Jerusalem and show himself to his disciples and said, I've risen! That's actually believed by people, many people today. Well, that falls apart. Of course, we know that he was pronounced dead by a team of Roman executioners. A spear pierced the, the side. Blood and water came out, indicating that the pericardium had been pierced, that he had gone through cardiac failure. Pilate accepted his death. He was placed and certified as a dead man into that tomb. So that's a ridiculous argument. Ridiculous indeed. Second one is that they believe the disciples stole the body. Now, this was actually invented by the Jewish authorities. You can read about it in the last uh, chapters of Matthew to cover the fact that a resurrection had actually occurred. So the very fact that that was made up proves what occurred. What occurred? A resurrection. It was fabricated. There's lots of problems with that story. And I won't go into, but that made its rounds. That's what the Jewish authorities invented to explain it away but the burial wrappings, the shroud, all of it completely destroys that argument. Third, the idea is, well, the Romans stole the body. No, the Romans were guarding the body. Okay, number four. Okay, we got one. We got one. The Jewish authorities stole Jesus' body. Oh, no, they were the ones who were so afraid of a resurrection or some event regarding the body, they were the ones who asked the Romans to guard the body. They had no interest in a resurrection or anything happening to the body of Jesus. 
You see, all of these are they're just grasping in the darkness because people with dark hearts don't want to admit the supernatural and the resurrection. Here's the last two. Some scholars believe that this whole account is accurate and what happened to Mary and John was accurate, but they went to the wrong tomb. They went to the wrong tomb. You know, it was dark and it was early in the morning. You know how women are with directions, you know. (laughs) Every time I've taught this, I've used that joke and it still works. but (laughs) But this is a joke. Mary and the women had actually seen where the Jesus body was placed three nights before when Joseph had placed it there. It wasn't a big cemetery where you could get confused. It was a private tomb. There weren't any tombs around it. Now, if you accept that Mary went to the wrong tomb, you have to accept that the disciples ran back to the wrong tomb. And then the other disciples, when they came, ran back to the wrong tomb. And then the Jews uh, were protecting the wrong tomb because the Roman soldiers ran from the wrong tomb. Do you see how this all just turns into a ridiculous dodge? And here's the last one. Many people believe this today. Yeah, these accounts are there, but everybody that wrote them was hallucinating. Mary loved Jesus so much, she just imagined this was going to happen. John had the same issue. They hallucinated it all. Well, hallucinations only happen to people that want to believe something to be true. And I've already proven to you that none of them believed resurrections happened. And they didn't think he was going to rise from the dead. They were not psychologically set up to hallucinate. By the way, Jesus appeared on 10 different occasions to groups of up to 500 people at one time over 40 days after that. Would you like to tell me that all those people were hallucinating? Really? That takes more faith than believing in a resurrection. (laughs) So you see, this is where skeptics land, and it's where you may land today. But my my scholarly answer to all six of these challenges to the resurrection, you want to hear my scholarly answer after many years of study? Really? That's my answer. Really? No, the answer is the evidence is irrevocably placed upon the conclusion that Jesus Christ rose physically and bodily from that grave. Now that happened... John wrote it in his gospel years later, and then at the very end, in chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31, you know why he wrote it. He said this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now we get to you today in 2022, on a Resurrection Sunday morning. If you do not yet believe, John says you have all the evidence you need, and he invites you to believe. Here is the answer to your questions about life after death. Here is the answer to your questions about what to do with the moral guilt in your life. Here is the answer to your understanding and your questions about how how you came to be and what your purpose is. And is there a God? And is there an eternity that you can be certain that you'll walk into? All of these questions are answered in the tomb, the empty tomb. And you can come in belief and turn to him today. It's right here for you. Now, whenever I preach on the resurrection, whenever I know that hearts may be here that have yet to turn to him, I always give an opportunity for you to do just that. Searching and surging through some of your minds right now is how. How do I 
find the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the Bible says in Romans 10.8, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That can happen in a moment for you. You say, how can I have a relationship with Jesus? Well, John and I are so glad you asked. I'll tell you in 60 seconds. Here it is. First, realize that you're a sinner. The Bible says that no one is good, not even one. Romans chapter 3. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know it. If the Spirit of God is working in your heart right now, you know it. As I did. Second, Recognize that Jesus Christ died on that cross for you. Romans 5 eight. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. That death paid it all for you, all your debt of sin before a perfect God. Third, repent of your sin. To repent means to, to change your direction in life, to change the lordship of your life from yours to his. Bible tells us in Acts chapter 3, repent therefore and be converted. And lastly, receive Jesus Christ into your life. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. It's a simple faith decision, like Romans 10 tells you, to believe that Jesus died for you, he rose from the dead for you, you trust him as Savior and Lord. You can do that in a quiet moment of decision and prayer. And so I want you to bow your heads and hearts with me as we close. And I want our worship team to come. And as they do, I just want to, in, in a bowed moment of prayer, allow this moment to be perhaps your moment to come to Christ. Out of skepticism, like John did, simply believing You say, what do I do? How do I do this? Well, let me just share a prayer a lot like the one that I prayed many years ago from skepticism to faith. Perhaps these words can guide your heart as you encounter the Lord right now privately in your own heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you died for my sins and rose again from the dead. Right now I turn from my sins and open the door of my heart and life to receive you. I confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me today. Amen.